This week on The Futurists, Dr. Marco Vilenius. As a futurist, they are always alternatives. Just we need to find out what they are and we need to work on them. We don't let the future just happen to us. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and I'm joined by my co-host and partner, Brett King. Brett, super good to see hey. you. I see that you're on the road. You're traveling once again. Traveling, man. I'm, I'm going to see my agent, Jay. You know, many of our listeners will have heard me talk about him before, and he's in Charlotte. And, and I was, uh, I just didn't get there on time, so I've had to pull over at a Tesla supercharging station, and, and I'm doing the show from there. What a futuristic statement there. So great. Good to see you calling in from the from the from the Tesla on the roads on the East Coast. Uh, you know, Brett, I've been thinking a lot lately. We've talked to many people about artificial intelligence. Um, but they always talk about it very specifically to one field that they're interested in. And I thought, you know, let's let's zoom out because there are many, many changes happening in the world, uh, not limited to technology and not necessarily connected to artificial intelligence. And I'm hoping to get a broader perspective. Uh, and so today I'm really thrilled to have a guest who's joining us. He's a very distinguished person who's achieved a great deal in his career. Um, he is the UNESCO chair in learning society and futures education. He's a futurist. He's a speaker. He's written many books and many, many research papers. Um, and he's also a professor at Finland's Futures Research Center. So welcome to the show, Dr. Marku Vilanius. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Uh, thank you, Brett. Uh, really enjoying to be here with you. Uh, even if we are in the separate places in the earth, I'm here up in Finland, but it's really good to get connected with you guys. Are you in Helsinki or someplace else? Yeah. Yeah, this is where I am. It's actually Helsinki, the capital of Finland. Cool. Um, and, um, um, and here we have already... <clears throat> Uh, a kind of a darkness and the evening uh <laughs> evening here so um so we are a bit ahead of a time uh, <laughs> compared to you guys i used to do quite a bit of work in finland the first time i arrived was in february and it was so cold mm. that i thought that the wind was going to tear my face off it was freezing cold and <laughs> dark all the time and i asked someone <laughs> when does the sun come up and they said april <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> That's a bit of an extreme way of looking at that. <laughs> this would be, by the way, this would be holding truth if you would go up to the Lapland, which yeah. is, you know, like, you know, 800 miles from here. But uh, if you do that, then it's a pitch dark all the yeah. time. <laughs> this step, not pitch dark. I guess a little bit of light, but no sun available anywhere. So. I am. Um, I, I live in Los Angeles, and we have many visitors from Finland. Um, I think partly because they like the weather, of course, in Santa Monica, they like the beach. But there's also so. a, a long-standing connection between Finnish game companies and um, and the media business here in Los Angeles. So Finnish game developers are constantly coming through Los Angeles every time there's a big game trade event in San Francisco or yeah. or, San, or, or Las Vegas. Uh, the Finnish embassy here, the Finnish consulate, will have a uh, will have a special gathering. And they do a very good job of promoting Finnish companies, but particularly game developers. Who are some of the big game developers in Finland? Yeah, well, Supercell is obviously uh, the most sort of distinguished, uh, and they really made incredible. Um, uh, Rovio is the other one, and they are. I don't know for some. 
funny reason. I don't know what's the reason for that, but really, uh, uh, there is a lot of game developing here. Yeah. Yeah. So back in the day, this is 20 years ago, Nokia was doing a very good job of fostering a local ecosystem of developers for mobile content. And because oh, they're yeah. based in Finland, they supported Finnish companies, of course. Um, but that that's the that's part of the origin story. And then, of course, you have a lot of talent in mobile, and that's the fastest growing sector of not just of games, but of all kinds of media. So uh, mm -hmm. Finnish people have some advantages there. But I think it's interesting for our, our listeners to know that Finland punches above its weight class. It's, it's one of, you know, for a country with 5 million people, you do a great job of producing world-class media. <laughs> for quite a while, right? Um, yeah. You know, like you can, you can uh, hark back to the Nokia and Skype days and so forth. That's right. So, so Marco, tell us a little bit about your involvement with UNESCO. What do you do for UNESCO's Learning Society and Futures of Education group? Um, well, um, I started to work with UNESCO about 10 years ago because they were sort of uh, asking me to help to, to build this um, idea, what is called the futures literacy, which is that, you know, we know what's the normal literacy, but what is futures literacy? What kind of the components are there? How can people read and understand more about how future actually takes place? Because it's a bit of a mystery. It's like an X. And um, and yet at the same time, if you go to the school, and I do work a lot with the schools, there are, you know, youngsters that are very, very interested to understand not only what's going to happen in the future, but what is the actual connection to the future? And how can they kind of uh, build a positive relationship with the mm -hmm. future? And so, um, so it, you know, I started to sort of develop some some of those kind of ways of of doing this and helping, particularly because I'm so concerned about the about the youngsters in this case, particular how they can kind of build this kind of approach that would help yeah. them to build this positive relationship in times when we know there is so much commotion around and there are climate changes and 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 not not. You know, kind of a job markets are in 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 the constant move, and you don't have this idea of the going to the job and for for life that that's kind of a disappeared. So so there's a lot of uncertainty, and and yet the only way to do that is to uh, just to start and help them to face the future, actually to to connect and communicate with the future, so to say, and mm -hmm. and then you know that's that's sort of how it started. And, and now we have a kind of very nice sort of a global network. Um, what what is the curriculum? The what do you people. teach students to do? Like how, how do you teach them to think about the future? Well, for me, it's always important to say, well, I, I basically kind of a divide them into the three parts where first is that you need to have some sort of a cognitive capacity. You need to understand how the world works a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. you need to understand the certain trends that are there and, uh, and 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 developments. You need to know about technology. You need to about the economy and society. Those kind of a those kind of a basic how they kind of evolve from the past to the future. That's one thing. Then, and this is more like a rational sort of a thinking capacity. There is this, this emotional thing about the future. So. What motivates you? What is the? What are your fears about the future? How to deal with those fears, um, and um, and how through dealing with those you can start of a start building 
this this sort of a positive relationship, which actually empowers you instead of you know being kind of a looking you 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 look like a a bit like a doomsday. Oh, it's so scary, and you we don't know what's going to happen, and you know, and 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 so much things going on. So so building this kind of a positive personal relationship for the future, and then the third part is that what what are the type of the skills that that you need in order to do that how do you need to be active because if you're waiting passively for future to arrive that, that never arrives you need to be the one that kind of a, takes your active steps but for taking those active steps you need to know what are your truly your your preferences over there but but taking those kind of a, i i call them four skills um, I call them complexity skill, planetary living skills, creativity skills, and empathy skills. So those kind of four critical skills for the century, which, you know, on the top of, of course, our kind of vocational training should kind of get us more connected to what are the issues in this century and how I'm going to be a part of being a solution, not just, you know, kind of riding the ways, but actually contributing to something, which I, from my personal perspective, feel important. I want to, and, and this kind of a willingness, not only to take care of my life or my family life, but willing to also to contribute, contribute to the others. That's what you always find with those people. Mm-hmm. Very often, particularly when you kind of a scrape down a little bit. So, so that's, that's basically the kind of a stuff yeah, Marku, um, you know, uh, one of the most common questions I get as a futurist, but from older generation is, what do I teach my children to do, you know, in terms of being ready? So you've partially answered that question, but um, I, I, I want to take a different tack on it. You know, um, like each generation uh, consecutively could have had moments like, you know, we have where, you know, like we when we grew up, it was the Cold War, um, you know, and things like that that were, were an issue in terms of uncertainty in the future. But the generation today is facing the uncertainty of the impact of artificial intelligence, climate change, the geopolitical climate. So how do you teach these uh, th- these youth of today, the leaders of tomorrow, to be more optimistic about the future? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to understand that um, we should not be too naive about the future. World is complex. There, these these issues around climate change is real. So it's kind of accepting the realities they as they are, and for doing that, uh, you need to understand. You need to understand, for instance, with the climate change, how this actually how we are actually changing the climate, not just that, you know, it's a big thing, but how does it actually work? How this carbon cycle actually work? And what can I do, in, again, in my personal life to prevent, you know, to, to worsen the case instead of kind of being part of the solution? So, so, um, so, so they need to sort of to, 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 to understand what are these big issues instead of, to say that okay, but you know this is something that you cannot do anything about, and so um, uh, just focus on your um, your own things in a way. Now, there's some, are there some skills that you could impart that you know um, teach the teach these ones to be more resilient in the future? I mean, you, you've 
you've covered it partially, but what are the core skills that make you future ready? Well, I come back to this, my my four skills that I am that I've been working with. And um and a, if I take for instance the planetary living skills, which which I already kind of a touch upon a little, so it's really understand how this, you know, this life system on this earth really works. And you are uh you need to do that um in order to understand how you can actually how we actually human species is a part of that. Um and for that um uh you need to have some personal experiences. It's not just the things that you are reading from the books, but you need to do something personally to 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 make this Kind of a connection more clear um more sort of more i would say experienced and uh and 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 that happens only if you activize yourself into something because i remember in my early days in my early 20s i was very radical i went to all these you know alternative movements because i wanted to do something about them you know i i, I just couldn't let kind of things happen in red and Whatever I was able to do, that doesn't matter as long as I was activist. So the whole issue around the, here is that you need to be active. You, you don't let just future just happen. You put your active kind of a stake in and 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 learn that not just that you 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 want to get some result out of that, but actually that's the way how you learn how the world actually works which is important. And I would say the last thing is that because we are so digitalized and because technology is all the time becoming sort of a more overwhelming and kind of invading our, our life world. So it is even more important today to have this connection uh, with, with the nature and with, with, with something that is what is actually behind all of this that we are able to live on this earth. Well, I want to ask you a question about, uh, related to the things you just mentioned. Um, here in the United States, there is a kind of culture war happening on our university campuses. And I'm not gonna be able to recapitulate all of it. I'm sure you're familiar with some aspects of it, but at the heart of it is this idea of um, intersectionality, that different people come from different life experiences, and they're the only ones who could be the judge of those experiences and discuss the influence on their lives of those influences. And there is a, a diversity and inclusion movement, a diversity, equity, inclusion movement that has arisen. This is quite well established in most U.S. universities at this point. But now there's a backlash to that. There's a resistance. Uh, some groups are saying, wait, these diversity groups are silencing other speakers or they're favoring certain views. Uh, they're not fostering uh, um, open research into any topic, academic freedom, they're silencing some sorts of research and so on. I don't want to necessarily get into the controversy of that. It's a very complex topic to unpack and I might not even be capitulating it accurately entirely. Mm. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is that there is a struggle right now and it boils down to a kind of struggle for control, a struggle for control over the curriculum, a struggle for control over what you can express or what you cannot express on a university campus. And that begins to spill out of the college campus into the workplace, uh, where we're starting to see similar programs, diversity and equity and inclusion programs at um, in, in businesses as well. Uh, one critical view of these perspectives 
is that it teaches people to see themselves as the victims of oppression. In other words, they're on the receiving end of historical oppressive forces. And mm-hmm. for critics, that is a very pessimistic perspective. Uh, it's also one that freezes people in the sense that they're not activated. Uh, they're not able to. Um, they're not able to be proactive in the way that you're describing. So I have two questions for you. Are you familiar with that dynamic? And if so, mm-hmm. to address that, and how do you equip people who hold those views for a future where they must have some sense of agency and the ability to take decisive action? Yeah, I think I think this is the very fundamental question actually because this comes back to um to the real question that you know what is what is the real agency in our time when we have sort of uh structures that is are getting reinforced unfortunately you know you look at the universities i know well the university been there for <laughs> too long i would say well i you know, I step out every now and then, so I'm I'm not sort of completely there. But um, but it's a it's typically a system where there is kind of an inclination to build more and more regulations, hierarchies, bureaucracies, all those kinds of stuff. Where actually, even if if everybody's saying yes. We need to listen more to the students. We need to more to the, listen more to the teachers. Something else is is, is happening. The, the 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 kind of a, the top down models is kind of a setting in. I do uh, every year with my students a systems thinking course, and in that systems thinking course, I ask them, "What is the type of the university that you would like to build?" How does that look like? How does that work from the system's perspective? And they always come up more or less with the same kind of an answer. They don't like it that this is being all the time more compartmentalized so that they don't feel that they have an agency because they, they, can, they, they are not allowed to communicate with the other part of the university, which is you know the staff the members the the, the 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 guys who are actually running that i mean they are the customers but often they feel that you know they kind of are reduced just to being customers in terms of you know getting what these guys are willing or able to deliver and that's it so there is not not really negotiated not real communication not feedback loops and, and 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 this is the disease of our times. Yeah, I agree. And, the university is an exchange mechanism. Yeah, it's a societal issue, though. You know, it's like, yeah. um, you know, I, I think if you look at the problems of climate, if you look at how AI is going to impact the future of work and so forth, you know, we need a lot more consensus building. We need a lot more socially oriented policy. And, and these are the two sort of worlds that appear to be, um, you know, um, emerging right now, the rights of the individual versus the rights more broadly of society. And, mm. uh, you know, philosophically, this is a, this is a real challenge, Marku. But, you know, um, l- looking out, you know, 10 or 20 years, um, how do you think these changes are going to affect the way people think of work and its role in society? Do you think it's that work is going to have have to have a more 
um, social metric in terms of a contribution to the broader community and dealing with these macro issues? Or, or you know, is the market still going to be the core driver of this? I think the only um, real way out of this this kind of a suffocation that is kind of a taken place is that uh, we need to really um, understand how important the agency is. You look at the corporates and the language corporates are using. You know, 10, 20 years ago, it was still very much kind of an idea of the rigid top-down hierarchies but today you go to almost any corporate and say what they strive to do, they try to, to start to empower the workers inside. They try to kind of give them, you know, use their real competence as much as they, they can. They try to get the hierarchies more flat, flatter than they were and so forth. So there's a kind of the idea of the decentralization. But it's much harder job actually um, than, than we often think because there is so much of those, it's like a gravity power that makes these systems called organizations of any kind like universities more and more rigid. And, and there's a need to be a lot of effort that not to happen and to, to kind of a divert. You know, the analog is the same as, as with the digital te technology. You know, 40, 50 years ago, People on the front line of that technology still thought that it might be going, you know, more centralizing. Uh, you know, why should people have a computer at home? You know, why, what's the point of that? Maybe just some kind of a terminals, but that's it. And and then, as we know, it it the the real development went completely different direction. Why? Because that was just so much more empowering. It it was it was it was kind of a because of this productivity that 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 was able to be squeezed out from this digitalization that happened exactly because there was this, this decentralization. Now, the same thing, slowly but surely, will also take place in all kinds of organizations. The point is that there is a gravity taking them to the other direction. So it really needs to be a kind of a conscious effort to do that. But if we are not doing that, you see how things are going in authoritarian states. You see how things are going in the United States. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, you know, this kind of a um, politics in place where everybody's basically trying to somehow to defend their own position, but the, but the good for the whole thing is just kind of a becoming absolutely secondary. And that's really sad. And that and happens. You, can't, you, know, that, you can't have that for things like climate change, right? You know, climate response is going to require broad cooperative action. Exactly. Regulation is going exactly. to require. There's no other way. There's no other way. I did my PhD on climate change in '97. My lord, you know, then it was still a bit like uh, on the fringes and marginal. Today, we know it's kind of a. It's one of the key issues, but. It was a long way to come to this moment when we sort of realized that. And but we haven't really realized that because we see now the whole international negotiation, still we cannot do anything with emissions by the negotiations. If that happens and happens because of the pandemic or well, leave alone, you know, the concentrations in the atmosphere, you know, we haven't done, been able to do anything with those things. 
And that is absolutely because of the lack of the concerted actions by uh, nation states. We're going to take a short break now, and we'll be right back after that break. So please hang in there, folks. This is The Futurists, and our guest this week is Dr. Marco Villanias. Okay, thanks. We're going to take a break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurist. I'm Rob Tursik and my co-host Brett King joining us from the road. This week, we're interviewing Dr. Marku Vilenius from Finland, uh, where he is involved in UNESCO's Learning Society and Futures of Education. He's also a professor at the Finland Futures Research Center. Now, Marco, we've been talking about these global changes, uh, the climate change, the inability to attain consensus, the idea that different countries are pursuing their own different pursuits or their ambitions. It seems to me that there's a redistribution of power at the global level, at the national level. We talked a little bit about it inside of the university Mm -hmm. as well. There's a redistribution of power. Different forces, different factions are coming forward. You know, in the past, this was viewed, um, I think, very simplistically in the Cold War when we were growing up, where it was, you know, the East versus West. Of course, the Finns experienced that firsthand because you were at the very cutting edge of that division. (laughs) Uh, But now power is being redistributed around the world. And uh, it makes it difficult to achieve consensus when you have different regional leaders, uh, different countries rising, different power blocks emerging. Give us your perspective about what's happening on the global stage right now between nations. What I see is the um, is this sort of a massive um, decentralization and redistribution of 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 the power systems of the world. Um, not just the obvious one, which is that that the Asia, the rise of the Asia, and all that, uh, uh, which has been kind of a, um, of course, a staggering. Uh, uh, rise over the last 20, uh, 30 years. But I think what we are going to see in the, in the future is that, um, that there is a much more collaboration regionally. I think there, there's going to be coming this kind of age where we are a little bit less, just everything goes very global. Um, and we start to find the benefits of having more kind of a regional collaboration. In a way, actually, European Union showed that already, the benefits. I mean, yeah. there's a huge benefits yeah. on that. The U- European Union is under tremendous pressure right now. There's a lot of speculation that it won't, that the euro won't survive. But, you know, we also have the BRIC nations now talking about trade alliances and, and so mm-hmm. forth, you know, mm-hmm. so- I, I, you know, mm-hmm. and and the thing that will probably, I think, um, 
you know, keep the EU going is that broad trading block, you know, and, you know, especially as you start looking at things like digital uh, currencies and autonomous supply chain and things like that, you need to have that that strong, coherent trading partnership mentality. And so the more you, I, I, I just don't see that fragmenting effectively because, you know, even though there's this debate around globalization and, and um, you know, nationalization, mm. things like that, I, I, how can you do cross-border trade without consensus, without those, uh, you know, very clear trading guidelines and, and um, relationships? You know, I think I think it's actually going to go the other way. I think it's going to become, you know, like maybe like east-west trading blocks in some ways. You know, China's certainly going to try and redefine this, I think. Yeah, well, there's going to be a lot of turbulence because... China is is going down, and as as we speak, we know that you know it's it's not going to be that type of a shooting star anymore as it as it has been, particularly the last 20, 25 years. Something different is going to happen there, and 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 there is a little bit of a, a lot of fears on that market right now, and uh, of course these tensions between uh, China and U.S. as well. And I think when we got over those, then we start to see. Um, uh, a world emerging where there is also much more space in uh, in the continents like Africa and even South America, and uh, uh, but it's going to take time. This kind of a ref- it's kind of a continental shift in a way, and um, and since this kind of a, the system of the trade itself and certain kind of a quality of the of the societies, it's been kind of a spreading now the last two hundred years. And now we're coming to the next stage where, you know, uh, we start to look a little bit with the new eyes to know where have they actually come to? What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? Now, for this far, it's been just, you know, this kind of a the rise of the of the global economy and global society. And we have come to a little bit to the limit of that. And 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 now we need to kind of reinvent how the globe will look like. And to me, it very much looked like that no more U.S. hegemony anymore, but no more anybody else hegemony. It's it's going to be much more multi-folded thing. And, um, and, and, and we're going to see some surprises there as well, some new rises. You know, look at the, you know, Mexico, for instance, you know. They had a hard, they had the strongest currency last year of all currencies in the world, and 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 we're going to see some of these interesting rises, which just actually shows that well, you know, those countries that we didn't look at very much, they suddenly are on the rise. Brazil, I'm also looking for that, and and actually the whole BRICS, it's going to be a bit different, but it's a real alternative as of this year. Now that they are expanding to the OECD, that's also a big deal and, and going to change this kind of a balance of power that we have had seen this far in the world. The power, when you talk about the change in the power, of, uh, the balance of power, um, I think it's important to understand what we have right now that we might lose, and then we have to posit what might happen after that. Uh, Peter Zihan has written an excellent book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And in that, he talks about the collapse of the global supply chain. In some respects, very prescient because we saw some for a kind of an example of that during the pandemic. Um, people tend to take it for granted that the United States 
Navy and Air Force protects the supply chain. That's the principal reason why the United States has military bases around the world, more than a thousand bases around the world. Uh, the rise of different economic blocks and different geopolitical blocks means that that's going to recede. That's very likely to recede, right? There's some pressure right now on the ability of the United States to maintain that level of control. In a way, the United States is like the world's policeman. And right now you can see, for instance, in the Red Sea uh, that the Houthis are shooting missiles, uh, trying to interfere mm. with trade. And, you know, occasionally they're hitting, uh, they're, they're hitting some ships. The United States is trying to fight back, but there's also resistance towards that. Now it's escalating a bit. You know, Iran has begun to attack U.S. bases and so forth. So there's a quite a, quite a risk that there's going to, that that Middle East conflict is going to spin into a regional conflict. Mm -hmm. um, if what you're saying is true and what Brett is saying is true, that there'll be a rise of different centers of power, that means there'll be a redistribution of geopolitical power, which means by definition, the United States would step back from that global policeman role. That would put the globalization and the global trade system at enormous risk. And I think we take that for granted. I, I think most people have been growing up in a world where you can count on ships, container ships, making it safely from one country to another. Entire mm. economies in Africa are based on container ships coming in with equipment and supplies and materials and so forth, and then taking raw materials out. Right. That will be jeopardized if this... Uh, this if, if this is, we talk about the, the fact that the Panama Canal might not survive climate change and, and the fact that, um, you know, 50% uh, of the ships on the ocean today are shipping energy products, you know, and that's going right. to change. So there, there are definitely nuances here. Well, so the, the thing is, I don't know if many people are focused on a future where the global supply chain is disrupted, maybe it breaks, maybe it fades away, maybe those connections break. Marco, what's your perspective on these topics? Uh, as we talk about the emergence of global power blocks, we also have to talk about the, you know, the, the U.S. receding in some respects. I certainly think American taxpayers don't wish to pay for this global uh, military power anymore. We don't see that we get any value. The United, United States is no longer an importer of energy. We're an exporter. You know, Robert, I think this is this is definitely a part of my view about uh, why this decentralization will happen and redistribution of, of the power. It is exactly because of that. Well, just look at the Russia. I mean, you know, we have a thousand three hundred kilometers, thousand miles, practically a border with them. And um, and what is happening in Russia? You know, they have created their own disaster right now. Mm -hmm. So this economy has been seriously, seriously flawed just when they then were they were about to get the nice middle income income country. They have already de basically destroyed all of that. What is left is that they are, you know, selling oil and gas and yeah. they they were about to pick up with the technology, but they, they're not definitely doing that now. Now, so what th that's. That's one uh, example of this kind of uh, disruptions that are actually, of course, they caused themselves, you know, they did themselves. And these type of the disruptions will happen. We already talked about the China, China and of course, Peter Zihan, if you mentioned that name, he's been very expressive about, you know, the risk of, 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 of a Chinese collapse, which I also very much believe. But out of those, out of those will, Come some new interesting coalitions, and I completely agree that this and uh, the uh, and it's very much my opinion as well that this kind of a global supply chains in the way it has been working cannot work anymore because it doesn't have the productivity that is needed. Secondly, 
there are more and more tensions coming and arising because of this diverse economic political interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we need someone like, you know, Iran is triggering all kinds of stuff around right now just to make our lives pretty nasty. Uh, we can call them a US. chaos agent, right? You, you have chaos mm-hmm. agents who are exporting chaos, right? They're, in other words, yeah. Even as yeah. the United States maybe recedes a little bit from its global policeman role, and maybe that's mm-hmm. a good thing overall. Maybe that should happen. Maybe there is right. some positive as well. That's yeah, yeah. what I've been thinking lately but, as well. But yeah. there are plenty of nations that are pushing as hard as they can to introduce chaos. And I view that BRIC expansion, the expansion of that BRIC group, I view that as basically an anti-US coalition. I know Brett doesn't necessarily agree with that perspective, but it's hard to understand what brings those groups together. It is in respect that. to the US dollar and trade, for sure. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're definitely trying trying to break the U.S. dominance over global trade. So I think one of the trends we're seeing then is that globalization and the globalized economy are under pressure, that they might break up. And I don't think people have a great understanding of the implications of that. Uh, That's that's one possibility. Mm -hmm. Now, the other one is that in the absence of strong leadership from governments, we're seeing the rise of companies, private businesses that act as if they're nation states. Brett mentioned it earlier, technocracy, the idea that you've got companies that are unaccountable to anyone except shareholders. Right. And they're beginning to make policy that does affect yeah, people's lives. Policy. Look, look at, look at um, you know, a prime minister in, in the UK or, or the president in the US having meetings on artificial intelligence. Who's there setting policy? It's the tech giants. It's the big tech companies. And, you know, these companies, these tech companies now have market capitalizations that exceed the GDP of most countries on the planet. So they oh, are yeah. truly planetary scale entities. Mm-hmm. But they don't seem mm-hmm. to be controlled by anyone, including the United States. You know, we have uh, a very active Federal Trade Commission right now that's investigating many of these companies for antitrust. But if they mm-hmm. do conclude there's antitrust, they don't break the companies up. They hit them with a fine. Maybe they pay a billion dollars in a fine of some sort if they do something wrong. Oh, that's that's a cost of doing business for these companies. That's not a. That's <laughs> not any kind of penalty. It certainly doesn't stop them. <laughs> Do you see mm. what do you see there? Do you see that these companies will continue to expand in, as 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 government leadership uh, recedes? Yeah, you see the, the the real challenge, as I see it, is this: um, this digital economy itself has created a very different kind of economy. It's really this winner takes it all economy where you have these huge giants uh, arising because. They are the ones that are sucking in all the energy, all the resources, all, all, you know, look at the, you know, for instance, Facebook, what it did, you know, how they rob the advertising money from, from these, from these traditional firms. And, you know, and, and, and so what happens is that it is this centralization force, which I claim in the beginning, it's always there. It's very, it's like a gravity. So in order to break that, you need to do something. You just can't let them grow and grow and grow like a amoeba, you know, like a like a cancer. I mean, it, but, but, you, but what you, do you, you think can be, be done? Able... What do you really think can be done? For instance, the EU has been struggling to define artificial intelligence for about ten years, and now they finally got draft legislation that's been approved by the EU. It still has to be ratified by the different member mm-hmm. countries. Um, but there are already ministers in European countries that are saying, "Great." 
The EU introduces regulation and gets unemployment. The United States has no regulation and has full employment. Which one do you prefer? Do you want regulation and unemployment or do you want yeah. no regulation and full employment? But that is exactly the point of, do you want to just go with the short term or you want, want to understand the long-term consequences? This is about the long-term consequences. You need to regulate. You need to be able to enforce those companies to split if they are becoming too too powerful. It it just breaks the balance of the power. But if you are very short-sighted, you say, oh, that's a good thing, you know, and no regulation, you know. Everybody likes remember Alan Greenspan was, you know, talking back in the day, you know, before the financial crisis, no regulation. No, 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 that's terrible, you know. You know, these guys know exactly what they are doing. They didn't know anything about what they were doing, you know, like... So, uh, so, 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 so we need that. And, and this is a particular, the European experience that unless you do that, you know, you're going to have, uh, I think plenty of people around the world are happy. The Europeans are doing it. You know, they're, 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 they're grateful. Regulation on things like pollution and so forth today. I mean, you know, that's the, the thing is, is, you know, we, you know, in the U S we are trying to weaken the EPA and so forth now. But I mean, let's face it, in the 1970s, when it was broadly a regulation-free environment, you know, there were lakes on fire, you know, look at the water um, quality and things like that. And, and 10 million people dying every year from air pollution. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's the outcome of lower regulations in, in part of the system. And with AI, you know, that, that that's fraught with similar sorts of threats to society. So I don't know how you can operate a society that is healthy and, um, you know, uh, and, and is uh, sort of works for the whole if you don't have some sort of rules in, in the sand, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, the point is this, you know, just look at, you know, what's happening with the, you know, with the, with the Russia and the rest, you know, with this attack in Ukraine, United Nations, totally incapable of doing anything. Palestinian crisis, same thing. UN, completely unable to do because it was created to the very different kind of the world. Our world today is so much more connected and it needs to have a body that can overrule nation states. My God, if if there is nothing of that, then, you know, whatever, we, we say this and that, but nothing happens. We cannot. But what are you, are you talking about? Some kind of global, uh, like a, a unified global government, some kind of world government. It I mean, has to be. Yeah. Well, it's basically uh, uh, it. It needs to be um, a kind of you know, United Nations two point zero or three point zero or four point zero. It has to be something. It has to be more effective. Uh, I would love work. to hear. I would love to hear your thinking about that idea. That's an interesting notion. I'm sure that many people would love to explore that. Can you do this uh, as we close the show? Can you give me an optimistic view? Because we've talked about many of the challenges. Those are real challenges. We're not we're not uh, kidding ourselves here. Those are real, serious, significant challenges. But you're on a mission to teach people how to think in an optimistic way about the future, a positive mm-hmm. way about the future. How can we take all the things we just talked about, all the trends that candidly do seem very scary? How do we make those mm-hmm. trends? How do we look at those and see them in a more optimistic way? I think the only way to do that is that we, each of us, in as individuals and as collectives, of course, also, uh, we need to we need to do work on this kind of a 
positive solutions. We need to think that we are a part of the positive solution. The moment you start to do that, the moment kind of changes your attitude in a way and you get less pessimistic, you get more optimistic. I mean, things are not very rosy. That, that That's something that I must say. But at the same time, I am positive. I am optimistic that we're going to solve these issues. I definitely am. It only takes us um, to become more kind of activized and see for ourselves and our you know fellows that what are those, even those small steps that we can do in our lives to get things in the, in, in, to get to the better, better direction. And, and, you know, we human beings, we are built as survivors. But of course, we need to be more than survivors. We need to be flourishing. And we cannot flourish unless we take care of what is our common heritage and what we're going to deliver to our children. And, and this is something that this time now ask for and we need to build a very new framework for this and it's going to happen because i think everywhere you go everywhere i i travel around the world like mad and everywhere i see that there is a serious intention to do something about this to deal with this current way because it's not the only way there are always alternatives and this is what i'm teaching as a you know as a futurist, they are always alternatives. Just we need to find out what they are and we need to work on them. We don't let the future just happen to us. Wow. Marco Vilnius, thank you very much for joining us this week on The Futurist. It's been a great pleasure to hear your perspectives. It's always fun to hear from our friends in Finland, one of my favorite countries <laughs> in the world. Really a remarkable <laughs> country you. in the sense that you're exporting ideas and new inventions to the rest of the world. I think many people would benefit from knowing more about your country. Where can people yeah. learn more about your work? Where can they find out about your books, your writing, your research? Well, you just put basically um, um, my name and, and in the YouTube, I have a, a YouTube channel. I also where, you know, I have, I'm in Instagram, I'm in TikTok. You can find me in many places in the social media. Um, plus that if you want to do more, you, you, you just type into Google Scholar my name and you're going to find a lot of stuff there. You go to Amazon, you find some of my books there. So, so there is a, there is a plenty of stuff around. So, um, <laughs> so you can find easily. Very just good. Well, thank you very much for joining us this week on the futurist and sharing your views and a big shout out to Kevin and to Lisbeth, our production team at provoke media. And a big thank you to our audience. I'm Rob Tursik. My co-host, Brad, unfortunately, was in the middle of driving someplace uh, <laughs> in the Southeast and had to drop off. Uh, and that happens sometimes. And we're not, we think we're hyper-connected, but we're not quite as hyper-connected as we'd like to be. Um, we'll be back next week with another futurist, someone else to share some thoughts about the ways to think about the future. And until then, well, we'll see you in the future. Thank you very much, Robert, for your kind invitation. It was really a pleasure to be here with you and Brett. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futuristpodcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.